week by week from the pick of new material, from the pages of best-selling novels, from the theater of Broadway and London, and the sound stages of Hollywood, will parade the most remarkable figures ever known. CBS gives you suspense. The two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benning speaking. Welcome to our continuing celebration of Suspense's 75th anniversary. It's 2017, and I've been waiting to bring these set of episodes to you for quite a while. We're going to focus on one actor tonight more than any other. And that's actor Raymond Burr. Raymond Burr, 60 years ago, would be on Suspense for this week. And that's why we're bringing it to you. But in the weeks previous to this, at the end of June and mid-July, he was on CBS's radio workshop with a presentation of The Silent Witness, where it's a real tour de force for Raymond Burr, where he gets a chance to, it's only, I think he's the only voice in the whole thing, and it just gives him a chance to really play around with the legal system, which he would do in a couple months, because in two months from now, he will be, make his first appearance as Perry Mason, a role that would change his life and uh, his career and be one of the most successful television programs in history. Along with, right after that, being in another successful red, uh, television program, Ironside, which ran for almost as long as Perry Mason. Now, before that, we're going to present to you his episode of Suspense, which is Murder on Mike, and it's a really interesting radio show in that it takes place like it's in a radio, like it's uh, another radio show um, with murder involved and it it's just really interesting so I think you'll really like it and Alan Reed is also going to be in that episode uh, Alan Reed, we've had in a couple things this week, we certainly had him earlier this week on Johnny Dollar and I hope you enjoyed him in that, and now you get a chance to enjoy him in suspense with Raymond Burr. Anyway, after our suspense with Raymond Burr, we will present that silent witness I was talking about from CBS Radio Workshop from uh, July 14th, 1957. And then we'll hop back a few weeks and present CBS Radio Workshop from June 30th, 1957, The Battle of Gettysburg, with Raymond Burr, and John Daner is in a lot of it, so that will be a fun, great episode. This is some really great, great radio for you. And these are the last three big shows. I mean, Raymond Burr really goes out with a bang 
before he's going to switch over to television. Uh, After these three shows we're going to play for you tonight with Raymond Burr, he would host an episode of Family Theater at the end of August and not be in it, just be the host, just to introduce it basically at the beginning and the end, kind of like I do. (laughs) And then, uh, and then he would be in four more episodes of Suspense while he was doing uh, Perry Mason in the first couple years of Perry Mason. He was in four more episodes of Suspense, which I think is pretty cool that he tried to keep doing some radio. And uh, it would just be hard at that time because there was so little radio to do. More and more programs were closing down. So it was a good time for him to switch to television. At this time in television... I I think in the 1950s, I always talk about how it's the golden age of television, which it is, and there's some wonderful shows, certainly some of the Playhouse 90s and uh, um, Studio Ones and that sort of thing. The prestige shows were amazing, but they were all filmed live, and so they're hard to show today because people won't put up with the video quality of them. So what we end up getting are the film shows that have been rerun for ages. And so what we really know from the 50s, the shows that have really survived and and thrived over the years are Perry Mason, which I didn't realize how late that happens, really. A lot of the shows are kind of late. You've got Perry Mason, you've got Gunsmoke, you've got I Love Lucy, and probably The Twilight Zone are the four biggest syndicated shows from the 1950s, and you've got I Love Lucy that started in 1951, and by 52 had shown, hey, it was the nail in the coffin for radio and just showed how big TV could be. But then you don't have the next ultra-successful television show until 1955 with Gunsmoke, and then 1957 with Perry Mason, and 1959 with Twilight Zone. So all of those coming towards the last part of the decade of the 1950s. Now for radio fans, uh, we certainly have the Jack Benny show happening at this time too. Uh, I just don't think it made as much of an impact over time with audiences watching it year in, year out, like I Love Lucy and Perry Mason and Gunsmoke and Twilight Zone. Uh, have done. And that's probably because some of his shows were filmed and some were live and that sort of thing. Also, uh, Burns and Allen, for radio fans, uh, we love to watch the television shows of that as well. Anyway, today the, uh, the other piece that we have to present for you today are two more episodes of Suspense. One from 55 years ago and one from 70 years ago, I guess. So I hope you're going to enjoy those as well. We have those tagged on the end, and so you're going to end up with five different episodes tonight. Um, Sorry, but I just wanted to present these Raymond Burrs. So uh, first you'll hear three Raymond Burr shows in a row, and then two more suspenses after that, if you want to keep listening. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Suspense and Raymond Burr for a nice tour de force 
of Raven Burr as an actor for three different episodes. Enjoy. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. Directors of radio plays share a common fantasy, an unattainable goal, the dream of producing a broadcast in which murder is actually committed on mic. But since they are by and large sane, responsible citizens, their dream is in vain. Not so the hero of the upcoming story. He sets out with lethal intent to make his dream come true. Listen, listen then, as Mr. Raymond Burr stars in Murder on Mike, which begins in exactly one minute. Every man has a right to envision his country as he would like it to be. Dreams foster reality. There are many legends describing the broad reaches of our land, like the one they tell about a Kentuckian who was once asked what he considered the boundaries of the United States. Why, sir, on the north, we are bounded by the aurora borealis. On the east, we are bounded by the rising sun. On the south, we are bounded by the procession of the equinoxes, and on the west, by the day of judgment. <laughs> Folklore belongs to every nation's legendary past, and I guess we Americans have our share of some tall ones. Like the one about... Oh, but we'll have to save that one for the next time we travel your way. See you then. And now... Mr. Raymond Burr in... Murder on Mike, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Yep. I want to see me, boss man. Oh uh, yeah, Chris, come in. Sit down. You hear the show Sunday? No. Well, you should have. After I got through rewriting that closing scene, it really played. I'll bet. I don't get it, Chris. I don't make you come to rehearsals. You don't have to sit in the control room all day. The least you can do is listen to the show at home. Nothing in my contract says I have to. Well, listen to this playback. George. Honest, I didn't mean it, George. Now get this, Chris. Get it. Do you mean to say that you didn't really mean it when you told my brother that you didn't love him? No. You forget, Doris, that I heard you every word while I was hiding behind the Davenport the night my mother was here. George, I beg you, don't do this thing. Put down the gun, George. This is only what you deserve. <laughs> you tricked me for the last time, Doris. You tricked me for the last time. <laughs> How about that, kid? What did you change it for? What was wrong with my ending? Why did you change it? Take it easy, Chris. I'll tell you why I changed it, because it was wordy and repetitious. Did it ever occur to you that maybe people are wordy and repetitious? Chris, I'm trying to tell you the scene the way you wrote it just didn't play. Just didn't play. That's right. Drag out all the trade cliches. It didn't live, it didn't play. You ran it up the flagpole and no one saluted it. Well, How did you ever get into this business? Whoever let you into a radio station? Chris, I think you need help. Help? Yes. Now, I know a good man, Freudian, but liberal. Don't you tell me I need a psychiatrist. Let go of me. I said let go. You are nuts. You listen to me, boss man. 
For two years now, I've ground out a murder a week for you. Week in and week out. A murder a week. I eat murder, talk murder, dream murder. And what happens? Every time I turn in a decent script, you chop the heart out of it. Your contract is up next week, Chris. You've only got one more script to do. Write it and get out. You'll get better than a script. You'll get everything you deserve. I'm going to show you what a real murder sounds like. I'm going to show you even if I have to kill you to do it. Good evening. This is a recording of an actual murder. Not written, not rehearsed, but well and thoroughly planned. It is respectfully dedicated to Mr. Ken Avery, editor and producer of the radio program Murder, Please. This is my last show, Mr. Avery. I'm delivering it to you in its entirety. Cast, music, everything. The events and persons are absolutely real. It's going to be a great show, Mr. Avery. You'll hear everything but the climax. I'm speaking into a microphone concealed in my desk and connected with a hidden tape recorder. A special microphone is attached to my telephone to enable the listener to hear both ends of any conversation. The music you hear is coming from a high-fidelity phonograph at my side. This program is produced, edited, directed, narrated, engineered, and plotted by Christopher Turner whose only claim to immortality is this final half hour. And now, Mr. Avery, the leading characters in order of appearance. The murderer, myself. The catalytic agent, your daughter, Lois. The victim, you. Listen. Listen, then, Mr. Avery to the last show you'll ever hear. Murder, please. Ken, this is Chris. What do you want? I hate to bother you at home, but I'd like to apologize for the way I acted this afternoon. Accept the apology. Ken, Ken, I'd like to talk to you about renewing my contract. Uh, How about dropping down to my office? Sorry, Chris, no go. I put up with you for two years now. Your temper tantrums, your insults coming in stewed to the gills. Two years of it was plenty. I've had it. I see. You won't change your mind? Not a chance. Okay, Ken. Thanks. Thanks for nothing. (laughs) Lovely opening scene, Mr. Avery. Thank you. You played it exactly the way I wanted you to. You just threw away your last chance to save your life. An excellent performance, Mr. Avery. 
I shall kill you in the name of the parasitical breed you represent. The avaricious, arrogant men of high places who milk the talent of others and claim it as their own. So, Mr. Avery, if you won't come down to my office by invitation, and I knew you wouldn't, there's another way. The telephone book. Listen, Mr. Avery. The sound of the flipping of pages. Your daughter's phone number. Here we are. Hello? Hello, Lois. It's been a long time. Bet you don't even know who this is. I don't recognize the voice. Christopher Turner. Oh. Oh, hello, Mr. Turner. How are you? Fine. Just fine. How do you uh, like living alone? Oh, it, it's all right, I guess. Rather be living with the folks? No. No, it's, it's kind of independent this way. How's the writing coming? Not so good, Mr. Turner. I've written five scripts so far, and every one of them has been rejected. I don't know what's the matter. Well, the reason I called was your dad and I had a little talk this afternoon about you. He, he thought perhaps I could help you. Oh, no bother at all, Lois. I like to help aspiring young talent. That's very kind of you. Well, what are you doing this evening? Oh, I was going to wash my hair. Why don't you wash your hair tomorrow evening and come down to my office right now. We'll get started. Well, I... I, I told a girlfriend I'd be home tonight. She was going to drop over. Can't you call her and tell her to make it some other night? Here's the point. This is the... Only free night I'll have this week. Things are sort of piling up. I'd like to see you get squared away with your writing. And I did promise your dad. Well, all right, Mr. Turner. You know where my office is? No, I, I don't think so. It's right across from the studios in the annex, room 208. I'll be right over. Fine. A and I, I certainly appreciate this, I'm sure. Not at all, Lois. Goodbye. Goodbye. I'll be right over. I certainly appreciate this, I'm sure. Not at all. You see, Mr. Avery, that's how people talk. Now, let's see, what else? Oh, yes, yeah, sound. Drawer opens. Gun taken out. Click of breech. Whirl of chamber. Bullets inserted in chamber. Three, four, five, and six. Gun in drawer. Drawer closed. Now we must wait until the... You see, Mr. Avery? Fate is a better dramatist than either of us. Just when things start getting dull, the phone rings. Hello? Hello, Chris. Hank. Oh, hi, Hank. Got you slaving on a round-the-clock basis now? When are you going to tell him to go take a flying leap? I just did that today. No kidding. Well, congratulations. From here, you can't go any place but up. Yeah. Say, Chris, we got a pretty active poker game going on over here. Just room for one more sucker. What do you say? I can't tonight. I'm doing my last show. 
Well, forget it for one night, why don't you? Live a little. Thanks, Hank, but I can't. I'm coming over and get you away from that typewriter if I have to use force. I can't do it, Hank. The show's next Sunday. Well, I got a script due tomorrow. You don't see me knocking myself out. Let them wait. I'll be right over. Now, listen, Hank, you can't come over here. Uh, don't you get it? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, Chris. Sure thing. Give her my regards. Anybody I know? A story conference, that's right. Yeah. Well, uh, take it easy, boy. Uh, how about lunch tomorrow? Mm, sure thing. Okay, Chris. Goodbye. Bye. That was close. Good scene, though, don't you think, Mr. Avery? Your daughter, Mr. Avery, has just driven up in front of the building. She wears a cardigan sweater, tweed skirt, flat shoes. She's young and very pretty. A girl with everything to live for. Now she's disappeared into the building. In a moment, she'll knock on my door. Then, Mr. Avery, you will hear for yourself how youth reacts to the threat of death. And this, Mr. Avery, would be the proper dramatic moment to end Act One. May I suggest, at this point, you insert one of your beloved commercials? In just a moment, we continue with... Suspense. Do you know the Social Security benefits to which you will be entitled when you separate from the service and take a civilian job? Here's a tip from Social Security. The basic idea of old age, survivors, and disability insurance is really simple. During working years, workers, their employers, and self-employed people pay Social Security taxes. The money is deposited in special trust funds. When earnings stop, or are greatly decreased because a worker retires, dies, or becomes severely disabled, payments are made from these funds to replace part of the earnings the family has lost. The amount of the benefit is figured from the worker's average earnings. The total payment can be as much as $254 a month for a family with several members collecting benefits. You can see how important it is for you to know just what the law requires you to do and what benefits it provides for you and your family. For more information, write to Social Security, Department 15, Hollywood 28, California, and ask for a free copy of Booklet 35 called Your Social Security. And now... We continue with the second act of Murder on Mike, starring Mr. Raymond Burr. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Act two. This is Christopher Turner once again, Mr. Avery, bringing you by transcription the first recording of an actual murder ever made specifically for broadcast. The setting, my office, the music, recorded the time night... The victim, yourself. Your daughter has just entered the building, and in a few seconds she'll be knocking on my door. I'm sorry I have to go to such lengths to get you into my office. 
I'd gladly have killed you in the street, but it's so much more difficult to make a recording there. So concludes the usual resume with which we begin the second act of every Murder, Please program. I hear her footsteps in the hall. Your cue, Lois. Sound, knock on door. Come in. Hello, Lois. Come on in. Thanks, Mr. Turner. Have a seat. Here, by the desk. This is awfully nice of you, Mr. Turner. I, I always tell Dad to stop imposing on my behalf, but I guess he'll never learn. You're here because I want you to be here, and for no other reason. Now, a cigarette? Oh, no, thanks. Uh, my, this is a, a nice office you have here. Oh, it serves just a hole in the wall, but quiet. Nothing fancy. Why? Oh, I, I like it. How long have you been writing, Lois? Oh, all of my life, but, uh, well, seriously, about six months. Oh, what sort of things? Murder, mostly. I hear that's what sells best. True. True, you can usually make more money writing about murder than committing it. So, uh, suppose we just start talking about murder. Maybe something interesting will come out. Now, tell me, why do you think people kill? Well, lots of reasons, I guess. Could you kill? I don't think so. Maybe you could. Here. Here's a loaded gun. Take it. Oh, please put it away. Uh, take it in your hand. No, no, I, I'd rather not. Oh, no, it's very obedient. Won't fire unless you press the trigger. Now, take it. That's it. Now... Point it at me. Oh, please, I... Think now, think. One touch of your finger, and you kill me. One little touch. Very delicate instrument, the trigger. There's a sense of power there. Feel it? I, I'm afraid. Fear? Yes, but exhilaration, too, like the second drink. Yes, I... I, I guess I feel it. You... You can give it back to me now. Oh, I... I never held a gun before. Are you afraid of death? Sometimes, when I think about it. What is death to you? Death? I, I don't know. No idea? Oh, emptiness, blackness, nothing. Is that so terrible? Yes, because you really don't know. Like the dark. That's it. You, you don't know any more about death than you do about me. You? Yes. Well, well I, I know you work for Dad. But you've never even spent one hour with me. Once at lunch, your father introduced us, yet you came up here alone. Now, how do you know you can trust me? I suppose I don't, really. Look at this gun. Please put it down. It, it makes me terribly nervous. Do you have any money? A little. How much? Five dollars, maybe, and some change. Give it to me. Here. Now, why did you give me the money? Because you asked me for it. Because you were hoping I'd put down the gun? And if I had said, a kiss, one kiss and I'll put down the gun, what would you do? I, I suppose... I, I suppose I, I'd give you... But a kiss? That would be harder to give, wouldn't it? Yes. Kiss me. There. Thank you. Now, now put down the gun, please... I, I know it's a lesson in writing and, and all that, but it scares me. No. But you said you would. I said nothing of the kind. And if I had said it, you would have been foolish enough to believe me. You can't trust a man with a gun. 
You feel helpless, don't you? Yes. While you could give me money, there was hope. While you could give me love, there was hope. But if all I wanted was revenge, there would be nothing you could do to save yourself. No, nothing. And if I told you that right now, this moment, I'm going to pull this trigger and blow you to bits, tell me, what would you say? Well, I'd try to talk you out what of it. What would you say? I wouldn't know what to say. Then I'd shoot. I'd tell you about the electric chair. Very little threat to a man about to kill. Later, perhaps, when he's running away, then he'll think about consequences, but not now. Now it's only kill. Now, what else? What else would you say? I'd beg him. He wouldn't listen. I'd plead with him. I'd say, please don't kill me. And if he still wouldn't listen? Then, then I'd die. Yes, you'd die. Mr. Turner, I, I think I'd better be going. No. We're not even started yet. Well, if you don't put down that gun, I'm going. I don't like it. You sit down. I want to tell you a story. Please, Mr. Turner. Sit down! This is just a sample plot. You can have it if you want to. It's about a writer, a writer who had great novels in him, great plays, but he was broke. For the sake of a roof over his head and three meals a day... He started turning out radio mysteries. He turned them out until every drop of originality was squeezed out of him. Finally, he realized that he had nothing to leave to the world. Nothing but scripts to be swept up by a studio janitor after the broadcast. Well, the writer made a decision one day. He would do a last radio play. A radio play with an actual murder. The only chance he had for immortality. And he selected as his victim the man who had squeezed his talent dry. He selected his editor and producer, Ken Avery. I like you. I like you very much, Lois. I wish this could be happening to almost anyone but you. Get to the phone. What? The telephone. What for? To call your father. No, no, I won't do it. You'll call your father and you'll tell him to come down here. Now pick up the receiver. No, no, wait. I'll do it. Oh, please. Please, Mr. Turner. Be quiet. Please. I'll take the phone. Tell him. It's ringing. Take it. Hello? Hello? Dad? Lois? Lois, what are you calling at this time of night for? Something the matter? Dad, I... You want him to take you home. You don't feel well. I... Lois, something I... is the matter. Where are you? I... I'm at Mr. Turner's. Turner's? His apartment? He... His office. I... I don't feel well. Dad, Come and take me home. Come and take me home. I... I don't feel well at all. I... Give me the phone. Hello, Ken. What's the matter with Lois, Chris? I don't know. She came up tonight to discuss some scripts she wrote, but she seems to be suddenly taken ill. You'd better come and get her. I'll be right down. Relax, Lois. We haven't got very long to wait. The script is nearly finished. Twenty minutes have gone by. 
And now I hear steps in the hall, steps of Mr. Ken Avery. The climax, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, I produced for you. Mr. Avery will never live to hear. Lois, are you... Sit down, Ken. What is this? Lois, what's been going on here? Tell him, Lois. He's going to kill you. He's going to kill both of us. Close the door. Chris, put that thing down. Somebody's liable to get hurt. <laughs> Good line. Perfectly in character. The inane cliché from the mouth of the great producer. You see, Ken, everything's being recorded. Your voice, Lois's, mine. Sit down. Recorded for what? Posterity. For the show next week. You have the honor of appearing on your own program as the murder victim. Let me show you here in the desk. You see? Tape recorder. I've stopped, watched every second. It's been running exactly 25 minutes. You always made it a rule to plan the climax for 26.30 so you could have room for a final commercial. Well, that's just what I'm doing. According to my timing, you have about one minute and 30 seconds to live. All right, Chris. All right. That's uh, enough of the phony dramatics. Give me that gun before somebody gets hurt. Stand back. I wouldn't want to mistime the climax of the show. This won't make a show. You won't be around to change it, Mr. Avery. The agency wouldn't put this thing on the air. Why not? You telegraphed the ending. Oh. There's no twist. No surprise ending. You told the audience to expect the murder to be successful. But our shows have to have some kind of surprise for the audience, Chris. You know that. Where's the twist? <laughs> Still the editor right to death's door. All right, Ken, perhaps you can provide the surprise ending that's going to save your life. I don't have to. Oh? You provided the twist yourself, Chris. But you didn't know it. And yet the twist was part of the story all the time. Where, Editor Avery? You, Chris. You're the twist. Me? That's right. You're a flop, Chris. You're so used to dreaming on paper, you can't live anymore. You wrote about love because you never had it. You wrote about fortunes and you haven't got two bits. You wrote about murder, but you haven't got the guts to pull the trigger. Now, give me that gun. You think I won't shoot? I know you won't. Give me that gun, you hack. What did you say? I said you were a hack. Give me the gun. No. No, I'm not a hack. I'm not. Give me that gun. Let go. Let go of my hand. Drop it. Drop it. I said drop it. Let go. <laughs> you always have to change the ending. Oh, Dad. It's all right, Lois. Oh, Dad, take me home. We have nothing to worry about, Lois. The recording will clear us. Oh, take me home, please, Dad. As soon as I make sure what's on that tape. I'll rewind it to the beginning. Here we go. Good evening. This is a recording of an actual murder. Not written, not rehearsed, but well and thoroughly planned. It is respectfully dedicated to Mr. Ken Avery, editor and producer of the radio program... Suspense. 
which Raymond Burr starred in William N. Robeson's production of Murder on Mike, written by S. Lee Pagostin. Listen. Listen again next week when we return with Flesh Peddler, starring DeForest Kelly. Another tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Supporting Mr. Burr in Murder on Mike were Norma Jean Nilsson, Anne Diamond, Alan Reed, and Byron Kane. Suspense. Suspense has been brought to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. From Hollywood, the CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. The Silent Witness, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, starring Mr. Raymond Burr. This is a play for one person. His voice and his alone will you hear. You will meet other persons. Your imagination will endow them with being, clothe them with costume, justify their motives, and evaluate their ethics. But you will hear only one voice, the voice of Raymond Burr, interpreting the role of Henry Charrington, District Attorney. Silent Witness, an experiment with your imagination. So, at last, it came to trial. The state versus William Bart, the charged murder. A cheap, stupid murder. The murder of a small-time lawyer. The accused, an elevator boy. Boy, well, a man. The motive, fear. Fear of an accusation of theft. The theft of a gold watch. It was the sort of case that would be forgotten with tomorrow's newspapers excepting for one point of interest, a point avidly seized upon by the press. You see, 
the principal witness for the defense, Alice Gardner, as you know, was unable to talk. The shock of the murder had been too much for her. She had suffered a stroke. One side of her face and her vocal cords were completely paralyzed. She was able to write, of course, a haphazard scrawl, but legible enough. Alice Gardner was brought directly from the hospital to the courtroom. I opened my cross-examination with delicacy. You can't attack a sympathetic witness too soon. Now, as you know, Miss Gardner, the judge has allowed that you may nod your head for yes and shake your head for no. If the answers to my questions require more than these indications, you may continue to write them on the pad of paper by your side. You understand? Good. Now, you must understand that we here seek only justice, not the primitive justice of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but the justice of man-made laws for the preservation of society. Now, if I attack your answers, it is not that I do not feel for you, that I have no grain of human sympathy within me. It is because I am a public servant whose duty it is to see that murderers do not go unpunished whatever sentimental bulwarks of protection may be placed before them by honest but wrong-thinking persons. Oh, I, I see you're writing already. May I? Thank you. You write that William couldn't kill anyone. I see. Then it is my duty now to convince the jury to the contrary. Miss Gardner, you are a friend of one William Bart, age 32, occupation, elevator attendant at Clifton Gardens, a block of service apartments? Yes? Hmm. Do you know of a person called Howard Lieberman, lawyer? You do? You uh, want to write? Please do. No, don't hurry, don't hurry. We don't want to rush you. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, Miss Gardner has written, I was responsible for Mr. Lieberman's apartment. Now, Miss Gardner clearly means that she was the service maid for that particular apartment, Mr. Lieberman's. That is so, isn't it, Miss Gardner? Yes? Thank you. Now, Miss Gardner... On the night of November 3rd, were you on duty? You were. And so, too, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, was William Bart. And, Miss Gardner, did you hear a disturbance in Mr. Lieberman's apartment? You wish to write an answer? Very well. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a matter upon which I would like the jury to be absolutely clear. Uh, thank you, Miss Gardner. Ms. Gardner writes, No disturbance called by bell in service room. I see. To be more explicit, you were called to Mr. Lieberman's apartment by a numbered bell which rang in your service room in the basement. Is that so? Good. 
and you went to the apartment and found Mr. Lieberman fighting with William Bart. No, I put it to you that Mr. Lieberman was trying to throw him out of his apartment. Yeah, let me see. Miss Gardner writes, no fight, struggle. Struggle? Huh. Well, Miss Gardner, the difference between a fight and a struggle is, in this instance, academic. You do know, of course, that Mr. Lieberman had accused Bart of stealing something. You know what it was? You point to my arm. A wristwatch? What Miss Gardner is trying to say, ladies and gentlemen, is that Lieberman had accused Bart of stealing a gold wristwatch from his apartment. Now, didn't Lieberman say that he intended to have Bart fired? He did? Yes, please do. <coughs> Thank you. Miss Gardner writes, he had no proof. No proof, Miss Gardner. No proof? William Bart, you will remember, and yourself are the only persons excepting the manager who had passkeys. I suggest to you that Lieberman called William Bart to his flat, accused him of the theft, and Bart confessed. And now I will tell the court the motive for this robbery. The motive, ladies and gentlemen, was the age-old one of necessity, the need for money. Because, because, Miss Gardner, William Bart was obliged to support a divorced wife. This obligation and the one he felt he owed you were more than he could fulfill. Now, I'm sorry, Miss Gardner, deeply sorry. If only there could have been some other way. But the medical evidence, as a result of your illness, the child you lost. Oh, so often in this court we have seen something that could have been a thing of joy turn into a sordid parody. And thank you. Miss Gardner writes, William did not steal the watch. I did. Then, Miss Gardner, how do you account for the fact that Bart admitted stealing the watch to the police last night, told them of its hiding place, from which it has been retrieved and is now lying, Exhibit 17, upon that table there? Miss Gardner, you feel you have recovered enough to continue this cross-examination? Good. I am sorry it was necessary to shock you as I did. You now know that William Bart is a self-confessed thief and that you have perjured yourself for a dream. You know also the consequences of perjury. Lies are futile, Miss Gardner. One is always caught. Now, with the permission of the court, 
I'm going to put to you my reconstruction of the crime. I would like you to bear with me until I'm finished. Now, Miss Gardner, after the struggle, the struggle in Lieberman's apartment, you returned to your service room, correct? But what about Bart? He goes to the basement, makes up the furnace, another of his duties, goes to his room. He smokes a cigarette. Gradually, he realizes the enormity of his offense. Ridden with guilt and fear, he decides to plead with Lieberman, offer to return the stolen watch. He takes the elevator back to the third floor, realizing that if he rings the doorbell, he will get no further than a foot in the door. He enters quietly with his passkey. Lieberman is startled by Bart's unexpected entrance. He orders Bart out. Bart pleads with him. Lieberman is adamant. Bart's attitude changes. He lunges for Lieberman, who strikes back. They struggle into the center of the room, knocking over a small table on which is a steel paper knife. Bart grabs it and plunges it into Lieberman's throat. He stands there for a few throbbing seconds, forcing his numb brain to think. That's it, a burglary. He must make it look like a burglary. He tears the books from their shelves, completely disarranges the room. In the midst of his evil work, he catches sight of the blood on his clothing. It frightens him. He must get away. He dashes to the elevator, making for the basement to cleanse away those stains of guilt. The elevator begins its descent. But for William Bart, it is a descent to hell. For here points the finger of irony towards him. The elevator jams between floors. And there he is, trapped like an animal in its cage, the mark of Cain upon him. One can well imagine the horror that overcomes him as he stands there between those walls, staring stupidly at the sign in the elevator which reads, In case of danger, ring emergency bell. The bell that will ring in his room in the basement. Yes, he is in danger, but he cannot ring for himself. Some minutes pass, and a certain Mr. Vince from an apartment above calls to borrow a book. He discovers the body, phones the police. They arrive only to find their murderer already trapped and waiting for them in his cell of guilt. The jammed elevator. Fate can sometimes be both judge and jury. That, ladies and gentlemen, is my reconstruction of the crime, one made possible by my one and only visit to Lieberman's apartment some days after the murder. I see you've been writing, Miss Gardner. Thank you. Miss Gardner wishes me to tell her how I knew about the notice in the elevator, the notice saying, in the case of danger, ring emergency bell, when the notice was taken down two days before the murder and one with different words put up. Well, I, I suppose I must have seen a similar notice in some other elevator. Oh, uh... 
All this is beside the point. It is not evidence, has no bearing. Huh? Thank you. Now, Miss Gardner writes, the elevator had been jammed by someone on the third floor. Oh, my. This absurd theory has been put forward already by the learned counsel for the defense, who has tried to show that many people have been trapped in similar old-style elevators as a result of mechanical failure. But even so, if some person, I say if some person, let us say a Mr. X, did jam the elevator, the problem is then, where was he when William Bart was in the apartment? The defense has put forward the remarkable theory that this mysterious Mr. X was in the apartment himself, that having killed Mr. Lieberman, he is searching the apartment for valuables. Suddenly he hears the elevator coming up, panics, dashes to the bedroom to find the fire escape. There is none. He hides in the bedroom. William Bart enters the room, sees Lieberman's body, runs for the elevator. Mr. X realizes that if Bart gets downstairs before he does, all is lost. He follows him, swiftly jams the elevator, runs down the stairs and out of the building. And now we come to the defense's preposition and question of Mr. X's motive. We have it on evidence that nothing of importance seems to be missing from Mr. Lieberman's apartment except the gold watch which William Bart has admitted stealing. And now why? Why should anyone wish to put William Bart on the spot? Lieberman led an ordinary, everyday life. We have no evidence of emotional upsets, financial difficulties, or anything else to suggest some other assailant. What then could be the motive? Save the theft of the gold watch. You wish to write, Miss Gardner? Very well. Oh, dear. Pencil broken? Never mind. Take my pen. I hope you don't mind the green ink. Now, Miss Gardner. Miss Gardner. Quick, someone. Quick. She's fainting. Well, Miss Gardner, I trust you are feeling better now. Good. I see you have already written something for me, written during the recess, I presume. I, I shall read it to the court. Thank you. Miss Gardner writes, Two days before Mr. Lieberman's death, I was clearing out his rooms. As I was taking away his waste paper basket by his desk... I noticed on the floor a sheet of paper completely covered with writing in green ink. Green ink. <laughs> I thought it must be rubbish, and I took it away with the other stuff. Sometime later, Mr. Lieberman rang and asked if I had seen this piece of paper as it was important. When I said that I had taken it away, he was very angry. Miss Gardner... What did you do with that paper? What did you do? 
Thank you. I burnt it. You. You burnt it? <laughs> well, then, it appears that the coincidence between that letter and my using green ink is not going to advance us further in our search of an alibi for Bart, is it? Uh, thank you, Miss Gardner. Miss Gardner writes, Mr. Lieberman then said it did not matter as he had six micro-photographs taken of it. Mr. Lieberman said he was sending them to some people who would be interested. Did he, Miss Gardner? Then we can only presume that they have been sent to the persons for whom they were intended. I wonder why they haven't mentioned them in the light of present events. Huh? Oh, thank you. Perhaps they were not important. Of course they... Of course they could not have been. Now, Miss Gardner, when did you first become aware that a crime had been committed? Oh, you're out of paper? I'll get you some. You... Oh, you have some in your purse? Good. <laughs> oh, bags of envelopes. Yes, I suppose they're all right. But those are unmailed. No, they can't be. I... Uh, Miss Gardner, I have one final question. Do you know who the mysterious Mr. X is? You do? Would you care to write the name on your envelope and, and give it to me? No? Well, you must. And give it to me. If the, if the answer is the, is the right one, it may be of profit for all of us to know. Any name, even if it is not the one we expect, could raise an element of doubt and perhaps save William Bart. Oh, write, uh, write the name and, and give me that envelope and don't point at me like that. Give it to me! Yes, Padre. I murdered Lieberman. Some time ago, I misappropriated the funds of a client of mine. They, they'd been left in my trust... I wrote a complete confession to him, as it happened in green ink. He decided not to prosecute since I promised to and in due course did repay him. But he kept my letter. When he died, Lieberman, who was his lawyer, found the letter in his papers. That sanctimonious fool thought that a man like me had no right to try for the Senate. He thought he could stop me. Me. I would kill a thousand like him, Padre, with as little conscience as I'd kill a fly. He threatened to expose me if I ran for office. I went to reason with him. If I argued with him, offered him money, anything... 
But he was mule stubborn. He wouldn't be bought. He wouldn't be bought. So I killed him. The rest is as the defense put forward. How was I to know that Lieberman would give these letters to that stupid maid to mail when she came on duty? Or that she would keep them in her purse until after she left the building? And then the crime, the hospital for her, the letters with the microphotographs lying, waiting, waiting until... <sighs> that, Padre, is the last confession of Henry C. Charrington. The truth, all truth. And these, I presume, are the gentlemen who are to escort me to the chair. I've sent quite a few people to you, haven't I, gentlemen? And now it's my turn, hmm? <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? You have just heard the CBS Radio Workshop's Hollywood production of The Silent Witness, written by John Train, a one-man play. Raymond Burr was the man. Next week, the CBS Radio Workshop originates from New York. The play, a fantasy. The title... The Green Hills of Home. From Hollywood, the CBS Radio Workshop. In a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, no long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. The CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind, presents William N. Robeson's production of Gettysburg. It began 94 years ago, tomorrow morning. Gettysburg before July 1863 was known only to its neighbors neither a place for battle 
nor a place for immortal oratory. Gettysburg, before July 1863, was a sleepy Pennsylvania village. Hemmed in by the rolling green ridges of the Appalachians, and crisscrossed by several dusty farm roads. It is quite difficult to think of it now as it was then. Only the monuments remain, and the yellowed pages of the report. Gettysburg, 94 years ago today, was warm sun and ripening wheat, and a strange, quiet expectancy. Today we heard that the rebels were crossing the river in heavy force and advancing onto this state. No alarm was felt until Governor Curtin sent a telegram directing the people to move their stores as quickly as possible. Sally Robbins Broadhead was a teacher who lived on the Chambersburg Pike near the center of the town. Day by day, as the rumors she heard grew into reality, Sally put them down in her diary. June 20th. The report of today is that the rebels are at Chambersburg and are advancing on here. June 21st. Great excitement prevails and there is no reliable intelligence. One report declares that the enemy are at Waynesboro, 20 miles off. Another that Harrisburg is the point. June 22nd. The report now is that a large force is in the mountains, about 18 miles away. General Robert E. Lee had planned his invasion for two important reasons. To feed and supply his troops on the bountiful harvests of the north, and to lure the Army of the Potomac away from his native Virginia. And now... As he neared Pennsylvania, Lee needed Jeb Stewart, the dashing cavalry officer who, frisky as a mischievous colt, rampaged through Maryland, tearing up the tracks of the B&O. On the same day that Jeb captured a federal wagon train at Rockville, President Abraham Lincoln appointed George G. Meade to replace Fighting Joe Hooker as commander of the Army of the Potomac. That day was June 28th. June 28th. About 10 o'clock, a large body of our cavalry began to pass through town. I hope they may catch the rebels and give them a sound thrashing. June 29th. Quiet has prevailed all day. June 30th. We were told that a heavy force of our soldiers was within five miles, and the rebels, learning that a body of cavalry was quite near, retraced their steps and encamped some distance from the town. It begins to look as though we will have a battle soon, and we are in great fear. Sunrise, July 1st. General Henry Heth, at the head of a column of infantry, advanced down the Chambersburg Pike toward Gettysburg. His mission most unmilitary in function, but nevertheless vital to the success of the Confederate campaign, was to find shoes for the barefooted men of the Third Corps. Where Willoughby Run flowed under a covered bridge a mile and a half from Gettysburg, General Heth halted, watchful, uncertain, observing the terrain, 
To his right was a cover of woods. Union forces could be there, waiting in ambush. Heth had to be certain. He ordered the woods shelled. It was here that the first shot of the battle was fired. I got up early this morning to get my baking done before any battle would begin. I had just put my bread in the pans when the cannons began to fire, and true enough, the fighting had begun in earnest. In his headquarters at Cashtown, Lee had heard the sound of battle and had hurried forward to get his bird. Heth supplied his commander-in-chief with a full report. Lee seemed satisfied. He cautioned, however, that a major battle should be avoided until all southern columns had converged. That afternoon of July 1st, there was the fire and confusion of a major clash. On the Union side, cannoneer Augustus Buell remembered seeing the Confederates coming. First, we could see the tips of their color staffs coming up over the little ridge, and the points of their bayonets, and then the Johnnies themselves coming with a steady tramp, 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 and with loud yells. For seven or eight minutes ensued, probably the most desperate fight ever waged between artillery and infantry at close range without cover on either side. They gave us volley after volley in front and flank. We gave them double canisters as fast as we could load. The very guns became things of life, not implements, but comrades. For a few moments, the whole rebel line, cleared down to the Fairfield Road, seemed to waver. And we thought maybe we could repulse them single-handed. But the second line came steadily on. The ordnance sergeant gave the order to limber to the rear. The 6th Wisconsin and the 11th Pennsylvania behind us, having begun to fall back down the railroad track toward the town, turning about and firing as they retreated. As the fiery sun settled behind the Pennsylvania hills and dusk settled over the village, battle-weary men, many of them wounded, straggled through the streets of Gettysburg. General Abner Doubleday was among them. This is how he saw it. They, the men of the First Corps, walked leisurely from the seminary to the town and didn't run. I remember seeing Hall's battery and the 6th Wisconsin halt from time to time to face the enemy and fire down the streets. We lay on our arms that night among the tombs of the village graveyard, so suggestive of the shortness of life and the nothingness of fame. But the men were little disposed to moralize on themes like these and were too much exhausted to think of anything but much-needed rest. In the Confederate camp, hot southern blood went to southern heads. Younger officers insisted on striking at once. Follow up the advantage. Give no quarter. But Lieutenant General Ewell hesitated, remembering that Lee had said a general engagement must be avoided until all the corps of the army had converged. And while Ewell diluted his valor with discretion, the Army of the Potomac got its second wind. It was sometime after midnight, July 2nd, when Meade reached Gettysburg. He established his headquarters at a shabby little farmhouse on the left of the Tannytown Road. There he could view the rugged terrain that gave his force a natural defense. 
For during the night, the Federal Army had added the names of Big Round Top and Cemetery Ridge and Culp's Hill to their war map. By morning, they would be well dug in. Of course, we had no rest last night. Part of the time, we watched the rebels rob the house opposite. It was a moonlight night, and we could see all they did. The cannonading commenced about 10 o'clock this morning, and we went to the cellar and remained until it ceased. General James Longstreet eyed the menacing heights of Cemetery Ridge. He had no taste for the battle that was taking shape. Any fool could see that Gettysburg had become Fredericksburg in reverse. Brigadier General John B. Hood reported to Longstreet. General Lee was seemingly anxious you should attack this morning. He remarked to me, The enemy is here, and if we do not whip him, he will whip us. You thought it better to wait the arrival of Pickett's division at that time still in the rear in order to make the attack. And I remember you said to me subsequently while we were seated together near the trunk of a tree, The general's a little nervous this morning. He wishes me to attack. I do not wish to do so without Pickett. I never like to go into battle with one boot off. The report minces no words. It explains the delay and Longstreet's pouting impetuousness. Although he disagreed with the tactics, Longstreet would stubbornly carry out Lee's orders to the letter. Despite a recommendation from Hood's scouts to skirt Big Round Top quietly and attack the Federals from the rear, Hood pleaded, but Longstreet held fast. General Lee's orders are to attack up the Emmitsburg Road. And so Hood led the attack. And some days later, while nursing a wound, completed his report. In about 20 minutes after reaching the peach orchard, I was severely wounded in the arm and borne from the field. I shall ever believe, had I been permitted to turn round Top Mountain, we would not only have gained that position, but have been able to finally rout the enemy. Meanwhile, Robert E. Lee, sat on a stump of a tree and watched the panorama of battle through his field glasses. Behind him, a Confederate band played polkas and waltzes. Before him, a cannonade played its song of death. Throughout the terrible siege, the general sent only one message, received only one report. Perhaps this was his system, to plan thoroughly with the three corps commanders then leave it to them to modify and carry out his plan to the best of their abilities. How did the plan look close up to the scene of action? Colonel Perry of the 48th Alabama. Upon the decision of a moment depended the honor of my command and perhaps the lives of many brave men. I knew that if called upon, they would follow me and felt confident that the rocks of Devil's Den could be carried by an impetuous charge. But then what? There were no supporting troops in sight. Before the enemy had time to load their guns, I made my decision. Leaping over the prostrate line before me, I shouted the order. Forward! Charge and countercharge. On the Union side was Theodore Gerrish of the 20th Maine. Our line is pressed back so far that our dead are within the lines of the enemy. Our ammunition is nearly all gone, and we're using the cartridges and the boxes of our wounded comrades. We can remain as we are, no longer. We must advance or retreat. Colonel Chamberlain understands how it can be done. Big Spanish! 
The whole air roared with the conflict, but a moment since. Now all is silent. Not a gunshot sound is heard, and the silence comes distantly, almost painfully to the senses. And the sun purples the clouds in the west, and the sultry evening steals on, as if there had been no battle, and the furious shout and the cannon's roar had never shaken the earth. And how look these fields? We may see them before dark, the ripening grain, the luxuriant corn, the orchards, the grassy meadows, and in their midst the rural cottage of brick or wood. They were beautiful this morning. They are desolate now, trampled by the countless feet of the combatants, Plowed and scored by the shot and shell, the orchards splintered, the fences prostrate, the harvests trodden in the mud. And more dreadful than the sight of all this, thickly strewn over all their length and breadth, are the habiliments of the soldiers, the knapsacks cast aside in the stress of the fight, or after fatal lead had struck, haversacks yawning with the rations the owner will never call for. Canteens of cedar, of the men of the rebellion, and of cloth-covered tin, of the men of the union. Blankets and trousers, and coats, and caps, and some are blue, and some are gray. Muskets and ramrods, and bayonets and swords, and scabbards and belts, and last, but not least, numerous, many thousands of men. And there is no rebellion here now. The men of South Carolina are quiet by the side of those of Massachusetts. Some composed, their upturned faces, sleeping the last sleep. Some mutilated and frightful, some wretched, fallen, bathed in blood, survivors still, and unwilling witnesses of the rage of Gettysburg. For the Confederates, the 3rd of July completed a tragic cycle. There had been hesitation and loss of the heights of Seminary Ridge the first day, an assault too feeble and too late on the second. And now on the third day, dawn began to break over the crests of the hills rising out of the bed of Rock Creek. This day was to begin with an attack too early in its timing to support Lee's revised plan. Culp's Hill. There at the barb of the Federal's fishhook defense, Confederate gray fixed bayonets and rose to the charge. The forces met, fused in one fighting force, fell apart at length, leaving their dying and dead. And a decision still unsettled. Behind the Confederate lines, the bitter dispute between Longstreet and Lee continued. To Longstreet, there was only one sane course now. To move around the right of Meade's army 
and maneuver him into attacking us. But Lee stood firm for another attack on Cemetery Ridge. The Army of Northern Virginia is not yet ready to confess repulse. The whole of the First Corps must be thrown into the new assault. And so it was. First, the review. Men standing, lined up before Lee, Longstreet, and General George Edward Pickett. Then, five hours later, in the stillness of a merciless July sun, the men heard the shot, the signal, and flattened themselves in the tall grass. The Confederate artillery thundered the beginning of the end. Two hours later, the artillery duel ceased, and Longstreet rode up to Pickett. Pickett! I'm being crucified at the thought of the sacrifice of life which this attack will make. I've instructed Alexander to watch the effect of our fire upon the enemy. And when it begins to tell, he must take the responsibility and give you your orders. For I can't. Even as he was speaking, a note was handed to Pickett from Alexander. I showed it to General Longstreet, asking if I should obey and go forward. He looked at me a moment, then held out his hand. Clasping mine without speaking, he bowed his head. I shall never forget the look in his face when I said, Then, General, I lead my division on. July 4th. It's been a dreadfully long day. We know, however, that the rebels are retreating and that our army has been victorious. And for the first time for a week, I shall go to bed feeling safe. As Sally Robbins Broadhead retired for the night, as Robert E. Lee led his thin, wavering line of defeated Confederates back south across the mountains, as rain drenched the battleground debris, and as black clouds settled low over the unburied dead of Big Round Top and Cemetery Ridge, so ended the Battle of Gettysburg. Two days later, Frank Artius Haskell, aide-de-camp for General Gibbon, revisited the battlefield. No soldier was to be seen, but numbers of civilians and boys, and some girls even, were curiously loitering about the field. And their faces showed not sadness or horror, but only staring wonder or smirking curiosity. All along through those bullet-stormed woods were interspersed little patches of fresh earth raised a foot or so above the surrounding ground. Some were very near the front of the works. And nearby, upon a tree whose bark had been smoothed by an axe, written in red chalk would be the words not in fine handwriting. Seventy-five rebels buried here. Fifty-four rebs here and so on. Such were the burial and such the epitaph of many of those famous men once led by the mighty Stonewall Jackson. Oh, this damned rebellion, 
will make brutes of us all if it is not soon quelled. Already, as I rode down from the heights, nature's mysterious loom was at work, joining and weaving on her ceaseless web what the shells had broken there. Another spring shall green these trampled slopes, and flowers planted by unseen hands shall bloom upon these graves. Another autumn and the yellow harvest shall ripen there, all not in less but in higher perfection for this poured-out blood. In another decade of years, in another century or age, we hope that the Union may repose in a securer place and bloom in a higher civilization. just heard the CBS Radio Workshop's production of Gettysburg, adapted by Leroy Bannerman, from the book of the same title by Earl Skank Myers and Richard A. Brown, with a musical score composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. John Daner was the narrator, and others in the cast included Ellen Morgan, Barney Phillips, Joseph Kearns, Byron Kane, Ted DeCorsia, Dawes Butler, Raymond Burr, Ed Jerome, and Howard McNear. Sound patterns by Gus Bays and Ray Kemper. Next week, from New York... The workshop will present You Could Look It Up by James Thurber. This is the CBS Radio Network. Suspense. On the wine lists of America's most distinguished hotels and restaurants, the honored wine featured is C-R-E-S-T-A, B-L-A-N-C-A, Cresta Blanca, Cresta Blanca. Yes, Cresta Blanca wines are featured in America's smartest dining places. Because these treasured wines are favorite selections of those who know fine cuvées. Let Cresta Blanca California wines lend gracious distinction to your dining, too. Enjoy delightful Cresta Blanca Burgundy, Sauterne, or any Cresta Blanca table wine soon. Shenley's Cresta Blanca Wine Company, Livermore, California. And now, Shenley brings you Radio's Outstanding Theater of Thrills... 
Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A. Roma Wines. For your everyday enjoyment. Tonight, Roma Wines of Fresno, California, bring you Jerome Cowan in Mortmain. A suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Shenley by William Spear. Sitting in a chair across the table from me was a dead man. His stiff, cold fingers still touched the shotgun he'd thought would safeguard his life. Police Chief Martin couldn't seem to sit still a minute. He kept pacing the floor behind me, back and forth, back and forth. We'd been waiting a couple of hours already for the coroner to arrive and examine Screed's body. Meanwhile, every cop in the city was out looking for George Perry, the obvious murderer. Where the devil was that coroner? You know, it's not the pleasantest thing in the world to sit around a dirty kitchen with nothing to do but stare into the face of a dead man and think. Think how it all started that day less than three years ago when George Perry, my law partner at the time, Sam. walked into our office and told me the good news. Sam, oh boy, congratulate me. <laughs> what for? You're looking at the next district attorney. What? You? Yep, it's in the bag. I've just come from a talk with Harry Polk, and he told me that when the committee holds its meeting next month, they're going to nominate none other than yours truly. I see. And that's as good as election in this town. Yeah, but I, uh, I thought... Uh... You thought you were going to get it, huh? I'm sorry, Sam. I just assumed you did get it, really. I didn't go looking for it, you know that, but they picked me for some reason. And what's the difference, Sam? What's good for me is good for you. We're partners, aren't we? And we'll stay partners. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Uh, congratulations, George. You don't really mind, do you, though, about the nomination? Oh, no, no, it doesn't matter. Well, I thought not. After all, my being the DA will bring the firm a lot of business, Sam. Well, i got to go tell Alice. She'll be tickled pink to hear the news. But uh, keep it under your hat, Sam. It's not official until the committee meeting. I understand. I watched George leave the office. George, the smiling and the debonair. The most popular lawyer in town. But it was my work that made him look good in court. My brain that brought him every easy success at the bar. And I hated him for having so easily gotten what I'd have given half my life for. He'd gotten himself engaged to Alice, the girl I wanted almost as much as I wanted to live. Now he'd taken the first step in a political career that could lead anywhere. I'd tried by fair means to get the same things and failed. Now I would try other means. I picked up my hat and walked out of the office. I went down to the waterfront to see a certain Mr. Screed. Yes. Oh, hello. Let me in quick. I don't want to be seen. Yeah, sure, sure. Come in, come in. Are you alone? <laughs> I always am. It uh, ain't quite right, is it, Mr. Boston, coming to see the foreman on a case you're going to try tomorrow? I'm not going to try that case tomorrow. I know I picked the jury today, but I won't be at the trial. My partner will be trial counsel. Well, it still ain't right, it seems to me. Never mind that, Screed. I think you and I can get along. Always aim to get along. Not that I got rich at it, but I ain't complaining. Not too much. Listen, Screed, I know you're hard up. <laughs> it ain't no secret. I guess everyone in the city knows that. I can put $10,000 in your way, Screed. Huh? Cash. 10000 Hey, that case don't rate no 10000 Why, you could buy the complaining witness for a tenth of that. I know. I'm not interested in the case as a case. 
But I am interested in your being the foreman of that jury. I don't get it. First, let's understand each other. I'm offering you $10,000 for certain services. Are you interested? Are you kidding? Why, for ten grand, I'd just about commit murder. I thought I had the right man. Now listen. Hear ye, hear ye, all persons having business before this honorable court of criminal sessions. Draw near and give your attention, ye shall be heard. First case on the calendar, people against Henry Barron. Both sides ready. Your Honor, please. There's been a substitution of counsel for the defendant. I will try this case in place of Mr. Boston, who was taken ill yesterday afternoon. Very well, Mr. Perry. The clerk will note your appearance. Is the assistant district attorney ready to proceed? Ready, Your Honor. Call your first witness. Just a minute, Judge. What is it, Mr. Screed? Before this case begins, I've got something to say. Does it pertain to this trial? You're not seeking to be excused from jury duty at this late hour, are you? Well, that depends, Your Honor. Maybe I'd better not serve on this jury. Why not? Because the defendant's attorney tried to bribe me last night. What? That's a lie. My partner would do no such thing. I ain't talking about your partner. I'm talking about you, George Perry. What? Come out of that jury box, Mr. Screed. Step up here. Clerk, swear him. You solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. You charge Mr. Perry with an attempted bribe, Mr. Screed? I do. Your Honor, I protest. This outrageous charge... You have your opportunity to defend yourself, Mr. Perry, in the proper place and at the proper time. Just now, I'm interested in this charge. Mr. Screed, you understand you're under oath. I want your entire story. Well, there ain't much to tell. Last night, about ten o'clock, I was home having some coffee. I heard a knock at the door, and I go to answer it. It's Mr. Perry. He comes in and he tells me that his partner is sick and that he's taking over the case. I tell him maybe he oughtn't to be talking to me, but he winks at me and he says it'll be all right. So I uh, I let him talk just to see what's uh, in the wind. I was never at his house. The man's lying. Quiet. Proceed, Mr. Screen. He tells me he's out to make a reputation for himself. And while this case is peanuts, still he wants to win it. He knows he can't unless he's got someone on the jury to cooperate. And he thinks maybe I'm his man. He offered me 200 bucks to hold out for an acquittal. Did you take the money? Well, sure. Sure, I played right along, Your Honor. I told him I'd do what he wanted. But all the time, all the time, I was just kidding him. See, I I was going to tell you what happened just as soon as court opened. Here, 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 Your Honor. Here, here's the 200. Brand new $100 bills. Why didn't you notify the authorities sooner? Well... There wasn't no hurry, was there, Judge? He wasn't going to run away. And I knew I could spill the beans this morning instead of wasting half the night down at headquarters. Your Honor, may I question that man? You may not. But he's crucifying me with a wicked lie. I should have the right to defend myself, to cross-examine him. You will have that right in the proper forum. I declare a mistrial in the case before me. The assistant district attorney will obtain a copy of the minutes for preparation to the presentation to the grand jury. Bailiff, you will place Mr. Perry under arrest. Court's adjourned. I showed the proper uh, expected astonishment at the news. I expressed my sympathy in a hundred different ways. I even arranged bail and took on my partner's defense personally. And when I spoke to George, already half broken under the strain, and to Alice, filled with worry and doubt, 
I was as calm and assured as a retired bank president. Why, it's as plain as the nose on your face, George. It's a political trick. The opposition somehow heard about your being the next DA and were out to spike you before you even got started. But who did it? You leave that to me. I'll get him, whoever he is, and when I do, the case will fall apart. Sam, I don't know what we'd do without you. You've been like... like the Rock of Gibraltar to both of us. If we didn't have you to turn to... You leave to, everything I... to Sam, Alice. He'll get your George out of this jam and know the reason why. I know it, Sam. Darling, you see, everything will be all right. But we haven't gotten anywhere, Sam. Not a single clue to the man behind this. Something will turn up. We still have three weeks before the trial. Now, if you're innocent, George, you're not going to jail. If I'm innocent? There's no question of that in your mind, is there? Well, uh, that doesn't really matter. You're going to beat this rap. Now, don't you worry. No, Sam, no, you can't believe it. You can't really think I tried to bribe him. You know me better than that, Sam. Sure, George, sure. I don't believe it. Now, I'm naturally going to give my full time to getting up your defense. And Alice can help me. Oh, Sam, I don't know how to thank you for standing by us. I'll never forget this. Never. Well, you'd do the same for me, wouldn't you? All right, now, you two. Don't worry. You've got an awfully good lawyer, you know. I got George to go away up to Fieldstone for a few weeks. I spent a lot of time driving Alice around in search of non-existent witnesses. My zeal and devotion to George were unbounded. And if I failed to find any proof of his innocence, it hurt me as much as it did Alice. In time, even she began to wonder, to have a gnawing doubt. Doesn't look good, does it? No, not too good. Sam, what are we going to do? Oh, now, don't you get to worrying, Alice. A smart lawyer can do a lot, even without witnesses. Don't forget, the law assumes that a man is innocent until he's proved to be guilty, beyond a reasonable doubt. Sam, I've never asked you this. I've always wanted to go on thinking that George was innocent. But I must know. Did he do it? Alice. Did he, Sam? You would know. No, I, uh... Oh, if I did know, I wouldn't tell you. Why, Sam? Why should he have done a thing like that? It wasn't an important case. It didn't really matter if he lost it. Well, he'd just been offered the nomination for district attorney. Maybe that had something to do with it. Who knows? All I can say is I'll do my best to get him off. Sam, you've been just wonderful. I've never really known how wonderful you could be until this past month. You've worked so hard. You've been so understanding, so sympathetic. If it hadn't been for you, I couldn't have gone on. No matter how this turns out, I... I want you to know I'll always be grateful. Thanks, Alice. Well, tomorrow is our big day in court, and I want to be on my toes. For George and for you. Good night, dear. I was brilliant in court that day. Every legal dodge, every technicality that the law allowed, I made use of. From the last spectator in the last crowded row to the judge on the bench, they all knew that I was putting up the greatest legal fight they'd ever witnessed. But I couldn't break the keystone of the prosecution, the testimony of Screed. No matter how much I went over his testimony, his story stood up, became stronger with every question I hammered home. And when I put George Perry on the stand in his own defense, he still had no alibi for the hours during which he was supposed to have visited Screed. His story that he'd been riding in his car seemed almost ridiculous. When the jury came in with its verdict, I knew very well what it would be. Gentlemen of the jury... Have you agreed upon a verdict? 
We have, Your Honor. And how do you find? Guilty or not guilty? We find the defendant, George Perry, guilty as charged. No! no. I'm innocent! I'm innocent! Quiet, George. And so say you all? And so say we all. The clerk will record the verdict. George Perry, rise and face the bench. Your Honor, this is a grave miscarriage of justice. The court fully appreciates, Mr. Boston, your tireless energy and diligence on behalf of your partner and friend. However, George Perry... You have been found guilty of bribery of a judicial officer under Section 371 of the Penal Code, which defines a juror as a judicial officer. As provided by law, you are subject to imprisonment for not more than 10 years and fine of not more than $5,000. Because of your previous record of good conduct, I shall impose no fine and shall not subject you to the full term of imprisonment. But you are sentenced to serve five years in the state's prison. You're remanded to the custody of the warden of such prison at once. For suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Jerome Cowan in Mortmain. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills... Suspense. Suspense. Radio's outstanding theater of thrills is being brought to you by Roma. That's R-O-M-A. Roma Wines. America's largest selling wines. This last day of July is a warm reminder that after a hot day's work or play, the tasty refreshment of a tall, frosty Roma wine and soda is so cool to come home to. Yes, Roma wine and soda gives you quick, thirst-quenching pleasure on the hottest day. A cooling treat that your family and friends will cheer to the echo. To prepare, simply half-fill glasses with robust Roma California Burgundy or delicate Roma Sauternes or any Roma wine. Fill with ice and sparkling water, sweetened to taste. In less time than it takes to tell, you're enjoying America's smartest summer drink. For delicious, low-cost refreshment or entertainment, enjoy Roma Wine and Soda. Made with better-tasting Roma Wine. America's favorite wine. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Jerome Cowan as Sam Boston in Mortmain. A play well calculated to keep you in suspense. lost the case. But losing that one, of course, helped me. I gained a swift popularity not only with the public, but with the politicians who have an eye open for brilliant lawyers. It wasn't long before I was having a little talk with Harry Polk and was being offered the nomination that should have been mine in the first place. The next thing I wanted was Alice. For the next year and a half, I was after her until finally she said yes and our engagement was announced. The whole town congratulated us. And then George, with time off for good behavior, came home from prison. One afternoon, I went to call on Alice. He was there. Hello, Sam. George, you're crazy to have come back here. You should have gone where you're not known. Started new, where your record won't be held against you. I don't want to start, no. I came back here for a purpose. And that? I'm going to find the man who framed me, and when I do, I'll kill him. Oh, that's not good. Not good to talk that I way, George. I know you both think I'm guilty. 
Everyone else thinks so. But I know I'm innocent, and I'm going to prove it if it takes me the rest of my life. How are you going to live? No job, no money. I'll get something to do. I'll shine shoes if I have to. Oh, I wish I could help you, George. But you realize my position. I'm not looking for help from anyone. Okay, George. But if you want my advice... I'm not taking advice anymore, Sam. Not from you or anyone else. I'm in this on my own. And I'll get him. Alice, you mustn't see George. Why not? I can't allow it, Alice. My fiancé, consorting with a jailbird. My reputation doesn't permit such things. George may have been in jail, but he's not a jailbird. Well, it amounts to the same thing. I demand you stop seeing him. Sam. What? I'm going to break our engagement. George needs me. He needs me desperately, and I want to help him. Alice, you can't mean you're still in love with him. Oh, I don't know. After all these months, it's hard to say whether I'm in love with him or not. But he needs help, and I'm the only one he can turn to. Well, what about me? You don't need me, Sam. I don't need you the way he does for a prop and a consolation prize. I love you, isn't that enough? You don't love me, Sam. I've always been second to your career. And now you're doing your best to ruin that career for me. How so? Don't you see what it'll mean? You're breaking your engagement at this time just while I'm about to get the nomination for judgeship? Nobody respects a man who's been jilted. Just uh, keep on going with me as, as long as nothing had happened. Afterward, we, we can break off gradually. Yes. All right, Sam. Now I think you'd better go. Evening, Mr. Prosecutor. Come in. All right, Screed, what is it? Uh... Can I talk? Ain't nobody going to hear me. No, the servants are off tonight. You can talk. Yeah. He's, uh... He's been around to see me. George? Perry? Mm-hmm. He wants to know who was behind it. Well, naturally, you sent him about his business. Uh, not quite. Said I might have something for him, uh, maybe. What do you mean? He showed me a roll of bills. Came close to 5000 It was mine for just one name. That's all he wanted, just the name. Do you know what would happen to you if you so much as hinted at it? I know I'd get $5,000 from Mr. Perry. And ten years in jail for perjury and accepting a bribe. I still have your written statement, you know, right here in my safe. <laughs> you couldn't use it. Oh, couldn't I? Why not? A confession that you'd been bribed to frame Perry. Bribed by an unknown man representing Perry's political opponents. How would you explain you're not using it before this? Oh, very easily, Mr. Screed. It just came into my possession. Came to me in the mail. I still don't think you'd use it. You see, I kind of figure you'd be dead before that. That, uh, that Perry, he means business. Got it all figured out, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yes, I reckon I'm sitting pretty. All right. How much? Well, now, I won't be a hog. Let's, uh, let's say another ten, huh? You can scrape that much together, I reckon. On one condition. Oh, yeah? What's that? That you go away and never come back. Oh, I like it here. Then it's no deal. Okay, I can still get that 5,000. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I know I'm a fool to give it to you, but there's nothing else I can do. Uh, when do you have your appointment with Perry? I don't have one. I told him I'd get in touch with him. Uh, I'll have the money for you tomorrow night. Uh, don't come here. Uh, I'll bring it to your house. Don't try any cute tricks. I'll see you tomorrow night, okay? Okay. Good night, Mr. Prosecutor. After he left, I wore the rug in my library while I thought about it. 
I knew this payment was only the beginning. Screed would go on with his blackmail until he bled me white. Something had to happen. And it did. I've got to talk to you. George! Sure. Uh, come in. Well, what's on your mind? Two things. Alice, and the man who framed me. Yes? I... I know how it is with you and Alice, Sam. She told me you'd let her out of her engagement after the election. What else could I do? Well, it was decent of you not to put up a fuss. Well, where would that get me? But uh, what about the man you say framed you? Do you have anything on that? Well, I've been putting the pressure on Screed. I think he'll talk. But I need 5000 to pay him. Oh, you know, I don't have that kind of money. I, I could get it from Alice, but I'd, I'd rather not. You, uh, you want me to give it to you, would you? Now, listen to me, George. If I thought paying him 5000 would do any good, I'd let you have it. But it won't. He'll just take your money and give you a runaround. But, Sam, if... Let me finish. You know what would happen to him if he shot off his mouth? He'd be killed. He knows that, too. He's not going to talk for 5000 or 50000 Forget it, George. Maybe you're right, Sam. I, I just I know, that... I know you're willing to grab at any straw. And there's another thing. Your loose talk about killing the man who framed you. The police know about it, and if it weren't for me, you would have been picked up. I understand you've gone and bought yourself a gun. Yes, I... I did. Give it to me. I'll turn it in. All right, Sam. Here it is. Uh, just put it on the desk... Now, you follow my advice. Get out of town. Leave as soon as you can. Oh, I've been a fool. Sam, someone promised me a job out on the coast. I, I'll go tomorrow night. Alice can follow me after election. And, Sam, thanks. Thanks for pounding some sense into my head. Oh, you know how I feel about you, George. Yes, I know. And I wish you every success in the election, Sam. I know you'll make a good judge. Goodbye, George. And luck to you. You'll need it. It was shortly after ten the following night that I drove out to Screed's with George's gun wrapped in a handkerchief in my pocket. I parked the car a short way down the road and walked quietly toward the house. I looked in at the kitchen window and saw Screed sitting at the table. His chin was on his chest. He was breathing slowly and regularly through his sleep. He was prepared for me, waiting with a shotgun in his hands. But I wouldn't ring the doorbell to wake him. Oh, no. I quietly opened the kitchen door, tiptoed across the floor, and placed George's gun, which I held in my handkerchief, against the back of Screed's head. His head bobbed forward, and that was all. His body didn't move. His finger remained motionless on the cock trigger of the shotgun resting on the table. Well, that was that. Two birds with one stone. Scream dead. George Perry, the obvious murderer. I dropped the revolver on the floor and went out. When I got home, I phoned Chief Martin. He said... What's on your mind, Sam? Martin, I'm worried. George Perry has been over at my house making all sorts of wild threats about killing the man who testified against him. I wish you'd send someone out there and get the old man to take precautions. Sure, Mr. Boston. I'll do that right away. I heard about Perry's talking wild. Maybe I ought to lock him up just to be on the safe side. Oh, I don't think you can. Not enough to hold him. But it might be a good idea to give Screed a bodyguard until I can have another talk with Perry. I'll tend to it right away. And then I went to bed. I didn't have very long to wait. Hello? Mr. Boston, I've got some bad news for you. 
Our man got out there too late. What do you mean? Street's dead. Shot right through the head. Good heavens. Better come out here. I'll be there in half an hour. Perry sneaked up on him and shot him. Street must have been tipped off that Perry was out to get him. Sat up waiting with the shotgun. Have you found Perry yet? No, I have a dragnet out for him, though. He won't get away. I'm having the gun traced and examined for prints. We'll have the report pretty soon. When is the coroner coming? In a couple of hours. He's tied up. But you don't have to wait. I may as well while I'm here. I sat down in the kitchen chair across from Screed. Now he'd never talk. And Alice, any last vestige of feelings she had for George would disappear with his arrest. Everything was working out fine. I looked at Screed. His position hadn't changed. His hand still clutched the shotgun, and I smiled, thinking how much he'd like to pull that trigger if he was still alive. And even as the smile crossed my face... Mr. Boston! Mr. Boston! Oh, my gosh, what's happened? The gun went off. My chest. What's the matter here? Let's have a look. Uh, Oh, my. Give it to me straight, Doc. Will I live or won't I? A yeah, couple of hours, more or less. You're certain? I'm sorry, Mr. Boston. Okay, I've got something to say. Get a stenographer. Take it all down. All right, Boston, we got it all. Don't talk anymore. So old Screed got to use his shotgun after all. <laughs> Mortmain. What's that? Mortmain. The dead hand. It's a lawyer's joke, Doc. You wouldn't understand. Can't say I do. Oh, never mind. By the way, what was it? Some sort of miracle? Divine justice acting through a corpse? If you want to call it that. Really? Just a tightening of the finger muscles that caused the trigger to be pulled back. We doctors call it rigor mortis. Suspense! Mortmain, starring Jerome Cowan and presented by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma, California Wines. Selected from the world's greatest reserves of fine wines for your pleasure. If you were to see how Roma wines are grown, you would readily understand why Roma is America's favorite wine. First, you would see how Roma selects and presses the choicest California grapes. Then, how these finer natural juices are guided unhurriedly with ancient skills and America's greatest winemaking resources to peak taste richness. Finally, you'd see these Roma wines placed with mellow Roma wines of years before to await later selection for your pleasure. Only a few can see how Roma creates better-tasting wines, but everyone can enjoy this better taste. Whether your favorite wine is not like Roma California Sherry, Ruby Roma Port, or Golden Roma Muscatel, you'll find any Roma wine your best buy in better taste 
for everyday enjoyment, for friendly entertaining. So, when you buy wine tomorrow, insist on Roma. Jerome Cowan may currently be seen in the 20th Century Fox production, Miracle on 34th Street. Tonight's suspense play was by George and Gertrude Fass. Next Thursday, same time, you will hear Walter Abel as star of Suspense. Produced and directed by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. In the coming weeks, Suspense will present such stars as Donald O'Connor, John Lund, Edmund O'Brien, Lloyd Nolan, and others. Make it a point to listen each Thursday to Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Calculated to keep you in suspense. In a moment, Act One of Weekend at Gleaves, written especially for suspense by Elspeth Eric. Mr. Henshaw, what is this Lady Pancoast business? They kept calling me that outside. Well, you did marry Lord Pancoast, didn't you? No, no, it wasn't you, was it? I've never seen you before, actually, have I? I've never even heard of Lord Pancoast. But Wallace assured us he, he went home for the wedding. Home? To Glebe's. Wallace's home is in New York City. It always has been and still is. Oh, dear me. What, for heaven's sakes, are Glebes? Glebes is one of historic homes of England in Sussex. Are you really Wallace Trowbridge's mother? Of course I am Wallace Trowbridge's mother. Well, at Denbridge, we'd never actually seen you, you know. Two months back, Wallace said you'd married Lord Pancoast and moved to Glebes. And you believed him? I am Mrs. Warren Trowbridge of New York City and the mother of Wallace Trowbridge. I sent my son to this school believing that he'd be looked after, but I find instead... He has been looked after, Mrs. Trowbridge, if that's who you are. Would you care to see some identification? Oh, you must have some records. My signature must be on something. No, we have indeed. Um, uh, bring in all the records on Wallace Trowbridge, will you please? Thank you. Miss Trowbridge, do you happen to have a picture of Wallace? That might help. I'm just not the sort that carries about pictures of her child. 
Wallace didn't even have a letter from you, Mrs. Trowbridge, until six weeks after he arrived here. He's had very little mail of any kind except from his friend, Billy. Billy who? Why, his pal. His great pal in the States, Billy. I don't know any Billy. You don't know Wallace's closest friend? Well, though Wallace did say you'd been ill. I haven't been ill. Uh, uh, yes. Would you say that again, please? That's not possible. You're sure? Well, look again. Look anyway. It's most embarrassing. There must be some mistake. What now? Miss Trowbridge, the truth is, Wallace's records seem to have disappeared. <laughs> for Lord and Lady Pancoast. This is Glebe's, isn't it? Yes, madam. However, the next tour is not until tomorrow. Well, I'm not interested in the tour. Burton! Who's that? Oh, that's the young master, madam. The young master? Yes, he takes the tours during the weekends. He does it quite well for a boy of 12. You know him, madam? Rather well, yes. Uh, would you have him step over here, please? I'd like to talk to him. In a moment, madam. You see, they're all leaving now, and he'll be here directly. Have you known him long, uh, the young master? Oh, I've been with Lord and Lady Pankhurst for all their married life, madam. That's not what I asked you. And with Lady Pankhurst's father as well. Neither is that what I asked you. Ah, the last one's gone, and here comes the little fellow. Shall I tell Lady Pankhurst you're here? Oh, hello, nurse. Oh, you were young Wallace's nurse back in New York. I'll tell Lady Pankhurst straight away. And, uh, Master Wallace, you've a letter from your friend Billy. Oh, good. I'll fetch it for you. Wallace, what is this ridiculous game you're playing? What game, nurse? You mean the tours? I relieve Burton on weekends. Burton's our butler. He's a very good chap. Been with the family for years. Wallace, you know I'm your mother, don't you? How long are you planning to stay at Glebe's, nurse? Just long enough to pack your things and get you out of here. How is Mr. Hines? I thought you were going to marry him. How is he? I've no idea. Now, look, Wallace. Why oh, here comes Mommy. You'll like Mommy. Wallace, I want you to drop this pretense. Do you hear me? This instant. How do you do? Are you Lady Pancoast? Yes, yes, I am. Burton tells me you're Wallace's nurse from school. No, I'm not, Wallace. Oh, Wallace, here's your letter. Thank you, Mommy. May I read it now? Of course, darling. I want to have a nice talk with your good nanny here. Lady Pancoast, I am not Wallace's nanny. I am not anybody's but nanny. It's I... just an English expression. Never I nanny. am his mother. You know it. Wallace knows it. I suspect even the butler knows it. Oh, this masquerade has got to stop. Oh, my dear Mrs. Trowbridge, let's not quarrel. We're so grateful to you, you know, for taking care of Wallace all those years. Hmm, I often regretted sending him to the States. The war, you know. Wallace was born five years after the war ended. Oh. Oh, well, the shortages lasted much longer than that. Oh, well, we did think of sending him to Ireland. Uh, no rationing there, you know. Well, sometimes I wish I had, but my husband, uh, he said no. Uh, the States would be better. Um, well, was it I who said that? 
Well, no matter what, Lady Pankhurst, this ridiculous fabrication has got to stop. Whatever do you mean, my dear? Finished your letter, darling? Almost. You know very well what I mean. He loves to get a letter from his friend Billy in New York. Billy who in New York? Well, I never thought to ask. Don't you know? He has no friend Billy in New York. Oh, but he does. He hears from him quite regularly. My husband and I assumed it was someone he'd known while he was living with you. Could I meet your husband, Lady Pankhurst? Oh, well, you can't have entered into Wallace's life very well, Mrs. Trowbridge, if you don't know who Billy is. Please, please, I should like to talk to your husband, if you don't mind. No, no, I don't mind. Oh, he's been quite ill, you know. Nevertheless, I should like to talk to him. If that's impossible, I'll have to talk to the police. The police? Whatever for. Which is it to be? Well, my husband, uh, Lord Pankhurst, is an invalid at the moment, Mrs. Trowbridge, uh, confined to his room. Uh, we have every expectation that he'll soon be up and about and everything will be as it once was. May I see him, please? Wallace, run upstairs and ask your father if he feels up to talking to Mrs. Trowbridge. Yes, Mummy. Are you married, Mrs. Trowbridge? My husband died a year ago. Well, so Wallace told us, but he, he said you might be marrying again soon. He did? Well, I hope it works out. That is, if you want it to work out. I think I'd rather like you after all. I, I don't think it will work out. <laughs> At least it hasn't. Oh, I'm so sorry. Go with Burton, Mrs. Trowbridge. Lord Pankhurst will see you now, madam. I'll show you the way. Oh, thank you. Yes, my lady. See that a room's made ready for Mrs. Trowbridge, will you? I think she'd like that nice sunny room next to Cook. Next to Cook's? Oh, it's quite a nice room, madam. You don't say. Oh, Jeeves is over 400 years old, you know. There's a story that Henry VIII once stayed here for a whole weekend. Really? Uh, perhaps you could have his room, except that we don't know which one it was. As a matter of fact, we don't know for sure that he stayed here at all. But I like to think he did. The tourists like it, too. Oh, it's a story you made up for the tourists, is it? Oh, sort of. You know, it's rather fun to think of old Henry stomping around with Anne Boleyn. He could have thrown her into the dungeon here. We have one, you know. A dreadful one. Damp and dark and all that. Is that so? Oh, yes. I'll show it to you. Tomorrow or sometime. How long do you think you'll stay here? Not long. Nor will you, young man. Well, the weekend, anyway. Here's Daddy's room. Yeah? Daddy, this is my old nurse from New York, Mrs. Trowbridge. Oh, come in, Mrs. Trowbridge. Do sit down. Forgive me for not rising to greet you. No, that's quite all right. We'll have a nice talk. I hope so. Perhaps you can... May I go to the village with Burton, please? To do the marketing. Well, if Burton's willing to take you, yes. Oh, he is. All right, then. Don't stay too long. I won't. Well, now, Mrs. Trowbridge. Uh, Lord Pancoast, I am Wallace's mother. Are you now? I think you know I am. Well, I know nothing of the sort, actually. At least you know that your wife is not, don't you? I must confess I do know that. Yes. Oh, well, that's a relief. Lord Pankhurst, is your wife... Oh, how shall I say it? Is she... Well, Mrs. Trowbridge, I, 
I think in certain ways, in, in some areas, one might say that my wife is not quite as she was. Yes? Yes, I think one might say that. But in a really delightful way, don't you really think so? Or don't you? But, Lord Pancoast, if you know your wife to be, to be insane... Insane? Oh, I, I, don't, I don't know I'd go that far. She has fantasies, yes. I, she even imagines that I shall be well one day. Fancy that. I shan't, of course. But her dreams hurt no one. They enhance life, rather, to my way of thinking. Hers, mine, Wallace's. Well, this particular reverie that, that Wallace is her son is not enchanting my life, I can assure you. No, I imagine not. However, until you discovered this little charade, well, you'd not been hurt in any way. Now, had you? Well, I don't see what that has to do with it. Oh, everything, it seems to me. You shipped Wallace off to a good English school and considered you'd done your duty. Now, well, a bright boy is not a piece of furniture, Mrs. Trowbridge. He can't be stored and then ignored. He just won't sit still for that kind of treatment. Wallace didn't. Are you trying to place the blame for, for this fantastic situation on Wallace? Well... He did pick my wife for his mother before she accepted him, you know. Well, I don't know anything about any of this. Oh, I wish you'd explain. Where on earth did they meet? Ah, Kensington Gardens. A magical spot. My wife goes up to London once a week, sees a friend or two, and then often takes a stroll in Kensington Gardens. Wallace was there this fateful day with school chums to see the statue of Peter Pan. He hadn't the remotest idea who Peter Pan is. Your wife enlightened him, I suppose. Yes, she did. And for a while, he had a grand time imagining himself to be Peter. Every child alive has done that, I imagine. I think it's the flying part that's irresistible. And your wife was Wendy, was yes, she? Yes, yes. They did enjoy themselves. He asked Wendy, uh, Lady Pankhurst, to come and see him at the school in case he shouldn't be allowed to fly to her. And she said she would. And she did. She couldn't stay away, Mrs. Trowbridge. Our two sons were killed in the war. I'm sorry. No. Well, when my wife arrived at the school, she was quite prepared to be Wendy to his Peter. But Wallace had recast the play. She was greeted as Mummy. Not Wendy anymore, but Mummy. She was also confronted with the fabrication that his mummy was going to marry a titled Englishman. This fabrication had been rather firmly established at the school. She never denied the story. They never questioned it. That was very naughty of her, I know. And naive of them. But schools do love titles for some reason. So do little boys. And now your wife has persuaded herself that Wallace really is her son. I'm never absolutely certain, my dear. But it's such a lovely fairy tale, she can't resist acting it out. When Wallace said you were his nurse, I imagine she thought she could continue the play a while longer. Or perhaps over the weekend. Do be a little patient with her if you can, Mrs. Trowbridge. We all fall into these little traps from time to time. We all twist the truth a bit. Don't we? Or try to reshape the reality of things just to make the reality a bit more bearable. Only the very, very strong can accept things precisely as they are. Oh, I wouldn't know. I'm, I'm not strong. But I, I know I can't accept this unreality. So if you'll give me a little time, I think I can persuade my wife gently that she has made a miscalculation. Lord Pancoast, give me one good reason 
why I should wait around while you disabuse your wife of the idea that my son is her son. G give me one solid reason why I shouldn't pick up the phone this very instant and call the police. Oh, I don't know that I have any solid reason, Mrs. Trowbridge. It's just that I wish you wouldn't. I can charge you with abduction, you know. Yes, I suppose you could. Well, shall I phone the police? Uh, wait a moment, Mrs. Trowbridge. I do have a solid reason why you shouldn't do that. You see, we have no telephone here at Glebe's. You have no telephone? Well, nobody ever calls us, you see, and we have no need to call anybody. If we really need to, we use the phone in the village. Then... Then I'll go to the village and use the phone. Oh, your wife's fantasy that she's my son's mother. It's intolerable. Well, just as soon as Burton comes back, I'll have him drive you there. Thank you. Meanwhile, let's just sit and talk. Lord Pancoast, you... You and your wife... Well, you've seduced my son. And I want him back. Seduced? Yes, I suppose that's what we've done. But he seduced us too, Mrs. Trowbridge. It was, or so it seems to me, a meeting of two lonely people in Kensington Gardens near the statue of Peter Pan. My wife was lonely because she'd lost two sons during the war. Why was your son lonely, Mrs. Trowbridge? Why was there an ocean between you and him? Why did he receive only messages from you through your lawyer? And why did he go to such lengths as to steal his own records from the school files? Was it to complete the separation from you? Was that it? Oh, yes, he stole them. We found them in his room here. Now, why hasn't he written to you since he started weekending here at Glebe's? Why does he write only to someone named Billy? And why does he write to Billy every week? Oh, for heaven's sakes, who in the world is Billy? Don't you know? Well, it could be some school chum back in New York. Well, I didn't know them all. But you wouldn't know his full name, would you, this Billy? Uh, it's Hines, I think. Uh, Billy Hines. Hines? Oh, it can't be. Oh, I can't it be. William Hines? Oh, he's, he's a grown man. Wallace doesn't even know him. Well, he met him once, but he doesn't know him. He writes to him. And Mr. Hines writes to Wallace. Why? Why would either of them write to the other? My, this is a good puzzle, isn't it? Well, let's try to figure it out together, shall we? Now, uh, this Mr. Hines... He's a man in New York. Yes. Uh, a man I... A man I'd hoped to marry. Yes? When when my husband died a little over a year ago, I was desperately lonely. Of course you were. I was only 35. I had friends. I met several men. They seemed interested and, until they discovered I've had a child. I see. I'm not sure you do. I, I don't think any man would. You dreamed of marrying again. Oh, it's all I dreamed of, I'm afraid. It, it's all I know all I'm good for. Six months ago, I met William Hines. Oh, I really loved him. Loved him. I, I was terrified of losing him. I didn't want the same thing to happen again. I'd been through it, and I didn't want it to happen again. I, I, I kept Wallace in the background as much as possible. Finally, oh, finally, it wasn't altogether possible. So, so I said... I said that Wallace was my sister's child, my dead sister's child. I see. I haven't a sister, dead or alive. I made it all up. I see. Then I sent Wallace to England, to school. 
Did you think he could stay here forever? No. No, but for a while. Until things were settled. Oh, well, they're settled now. He left me anyway. I got what I deserved. No, 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 no. I, I don't think... I don't know. I don't know that's the case. No, there's no use making any excuses for me. I... I tried to for a while until I realized... You don't object to my trying, do you? No. You wanted so badly to be a young, childless woman, starting out in life, all fresh and eager, to interest this Mr. Hines and marry him. Yes. Because if it were all true, it would help to wipe out the fact that you'd already married a man and lost him. Yes. You could go back in time, as it were, to your girlhood, and somehow become a young woman again. Wasn't that the fantasy? Perhaps. So that instead of being a woman in her thirties with a growing child, you could pretend you were a girl in her twenties embarking on a career of marriage for the first time. Yes. Ah, but the fantasy had to end, didn't it? Yes. I think Wallace was trying to end it for you when he first wrote to Mr. Hines. I think he knew a good deal more about what was going on in your mind than you did. His very first weekend at Glebe's... He asked me to find out where Mr. Hines lived in New York. I did find out, and Wallace wrote to him. But what could he say to him? I don't know. I don't know because he never told me, and I never asked. But I could make a pretty shrewd guess if you'd like me to. I would like you to. I think he wrote Mr. Hines that it would be quite all right to go ahead and marry you because he'd found for himself a substitute mother and father. That's what I think he wrote. Oh, I, I must have been insane. Oh, no. At least not hopelessly so. Come in. Daddy, I'm back. Wallace, my boy. Back from the village? Yes. Marketing all done? No, sir. Oh? Why not? Burton said I should tell you right away. I used all the money he had with him. I made a phone call. That's so? Uh, what sort of phone call? To New York. I see. And whom did you call in New York? Billy. Billy, eh? Well, I think that was a very fine thing to do. Was it? And what did Mr. Billy Hines have to say? He was glad I called. Oh, I'm glad. What else? I told him you were here, nurse. You did? He sent his very best. He's taking a plane in about an hour, a jet plane. And he's coming here. He's coming to Glebe's. He'll be here this afternoon. He's coming to see me. I see. Well, to see you, too. Really? Actually, he said to give his love. Oh. His best love, he said. Coming here? Billy? Wallace, you're positively ingenious. A really excellent solution to our dilemma. Thank you, Daddy. Really, the absolute best I could come up with was... Uh, uh, completely unthinkable, of course. Was our dungeons. But I like yours far better, Wallace. Indeed, I do. Bless me, I believe you've made your mummy very happy. Both of them. <laughs> Suspense. You've been listening to Weekend at Glebe's, written especially for Suspense by Elspeth Eric.
produced and directed by Fred Hendrickson. Heard in tonight's story were Raymond Edward Johnson, Grayson Hall, Neil Fitzgerald, Tommy Leap, Hilary Holden, and Christopher Carey. Music supervision by Ethel Huber. Sound patterns by Walter Otto. Technical direction by Michael Shoskis. This is Stuart Metz speaking. Listen again next week when we return with Run Faster, written by Lois Landauer. Another tale well calculated to keep you in 